The new year is here, which means it's time to start new habits and make those yearly resolutions. Mine this year was to get healthier and improve my quality of life, which is why I want to talk to you guys about Noom. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all and don't take into account each person's individual needs which in turn doesn't really set you up for success. Those workout plans you pull from the internet don't think about your individual dietary restrictions, medical issues, or other personal needs. Noom does all of that before building a tailor-made plan that works for you and your lifestyle. It doesn't try to restrict what you eat and never shames you for wanting to treat yourself. And unlike before, I feel the motivation I need to succeed and none of the frustration that came with other plans. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy wherever books are sold. Today's podcast is brought to you by Newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers nearly a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Some stories have details that seem to be lost to time. Stories like today's. On January 18, 1983, a young man committed a horrific crime in a case that, while difficult to find information is one that deserves to be told. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Before we start today's story, I need to make sure something is clear. This case, while filled with twists and turns, had very little in the way of information. While there were only a few sources that contained more than a few sentences about what happened before, during, and after the crime, there was a book written by Janice Holly Booth called A Voice Out of Nowhere that seemed to contain a far more detailed description of today's story, meaning that most of what I am about to tell you comes directly from her work. Bruce Blackman was born in 1960 to Richard and Irene Blackman. Living amongst a total of five siblings, Bruce had a twin brother who was, as is the case with most multiples, his opposite. By the time they were in middle school, though, these differences became more glaringly clear. And when Bruce began failing his seventh grade classes, his mother took him to a psychologist who, after an evaluation, claimed he was a, quote, mirror twin. A rare phenomenon amongst twins, the doctor explained that one twin is the mirror of the other, and that in Bruce's case, 
His struggles were made even more difficult by the fact that he was also dyslexic. Though these issues were out of his control, Bruce felt as though he was the failure of his family, began smoking marijuana to numb his pain, and dropped out of high school in his senior year. By the age of 22, he was living in an apartment and working as a swamper on a garbage truck, while his brother went off to join the Canadian Armed Forces. In the fall of 1982, Bruce's roommate started to notice a concerning change in his behavior. Though he seemed to smoke a lot less, Bruce's eyes always seemed to be bloodshot. He would go days without eating and claimed he was seeing things that the roommate never saw himself. Then Bruce started to talk about the end of the world and claimed he received a message from an angel who said he needed to, quote, know God. He began calling his father daily to read Bible passages, claimed he was seeing signs everywhere pointing to the apocalypse, and that he was seeing the angel even when he was awake now. Calling her the white woman, Bruce claimed his own name, black men, was a sign as well, that she was God, the white woman, and he, black men, must be the Antichrist. Fearing that she would kill him if he slept, Bruce began refusing to go to bed. By mid-December, he became obsessed with the, quote, little book in Revelations and decided that he needed to, quote, eat the little book. Believing that this included semen and menstrual blood, Bruce began masturbating and consuming his own semen to feel closer to God. The roommate by this point had had enough and suggested that Bruce go stay with family who could make sure that he slept and ate more regularly. Believing that this was the perfect opportunity to convince his family to, quote, eat their books as well, believing that they too were part of the apocalypse, Bruce willingly went back home and lived with his sister, Karen. That's when he became obsessed with numbers and, finding that the number seven appeared in Revelations multiple times, he decided that, since he and his siblings made six, one of his sisters must be pregnant to make seven. Asking Karen if she was pregnant, to which she responded in the negative, Bruce then asked if she was on her period, and when she said that she was, he decided that this was the perfect opportunity to make her eat her book. Taking one of her used menstrual pads from the trash while she was at work, Bruce put a few drops into a blender with some orange juice, two pages from the Bible, and packets of chicken soup, mixed it together, and made Karen drink it when she got home. Claiming the drink tasted horrible, Karen only drank a small bit, and after Bruce told her husband Robert that he made her eat her book, he told his wife that her brother needed to get some help. Scared of her own brother, Karen went to go stay with neighbors. Shortly thereafter, he found out that it was his sister Angela who was actually pregnant, which only served to further feed his breakdown. Deciding that Bruce needed some professional help, the sisters found a psychiatrist for their brother right around the time that he started making phone calls to the Canadian Department of National Defense and to the Pope. The doctor came to Karen and Robert's home to do an evaluation, and Bruce told him all about the white woman, the devil, revelations, and that he was the Antichrist. Not believing that Bruce was violent or a danger to anybody, the doctor did give him tranquilizers and encouraged his father to take him to a clinic for another evaluation and potential committal. Three days later, according to the book, 
Bruce showed up at Angela's home 400 miles away at 5.30 a.m., and she woke to see him standing over her bed. Asking to stay with her, Angela knew what was going on, but trusted that her brother would not hurt her. Though her husband Fred was a little bit more wary, he went to work at her insistence, and Bruce, hearing his sister mention that she wanted an omelet, offered to make one for her. Just a few bites in, she wondered if the eggs had gone bad and gave the rest of the meal to her dog, who, just hours later, could not seem to wake up from his nap. Angela herself felt odd, and when Fred asked Bruce if he knew what was going on, he simply said that the dog wasn't supposed to take the pills and that Angela was. After some convincing, Bruce admitted to crushing up seven of his tranquilizer pills into the omelet because God told him to. Believing that he was trying to terminate the pregnancy, thankfully both Angela, her baby, and the dog survived the ordeal. Though his family watched as his mental health continued to deteriorate, Bruce was accepted into a millwright program about 400 miles away that his father, years earlier, had applied to for him. Bruce knew it meant the world to his father, so he quit his job and agreed to enter the program. Though his doctor noted some positive progress, he urged Bruce and his family to reconsider the relocation, claiming that a big change like this could trigger his anxiety and make his other symptoms worse. Not heeding the warning, Bruce left for Nelson and, the morning after arriving at his dorm, promptly flew back to Vancouver claiming now that the voices were telling him to kill his family. On January 17, 1983, Bruce's father called his doctor to tell him that his son had come home and was not doing well. The doctor urged the family to bring him to the hospital for committal, and Richard agreed to do so the following morning, a decision that would end up costing him and his family their lives. Before bed that night, after listening to his brother talk about the end of the world, Ricky watched as Bruce hid something under his bed, and when he went to look for himself, he found a hunting knife. Scared, Ricky told his father, who said he planned on staying up all night with Bruce, so there was nothing to worry about. However, at 4.45 a.m., Bruce called his sister Roberta and, telling her that something was happening, begged her to come over immediately and bring Karen with her. Roberta called the doctor who told her not to go and to call the police instead, but saying she didn't want to upset her father, she declined, told him she would update him when she got to the house, and hung up the phone. The doctor never received another call, and at 5.30 a.m. on January 18, 1983, while boiling water for his morning cup of tea, one of the Blackman neighbors heard what sounded like screaming. Looking out the window of his Coquitlam home, he saw two figures moving in the neighboring yard, one pushing the other, and then what sounded like someone calling out for help. After a struggle, the two shapes seemed to disappear into the garage, and the neighbor, not really realizing what was going on, decided not to get involved in what he believed was a domestic dispute. What he did do, however, was continue to watch. Seeing one of the figures coming out of the garage to retrieve something and go back into the house, the neighbor heard another scream and then the sound of two gunshots. That's when he decided to call the RCMP, 
who arrived at the house to find Bruce Blackman wandering the property in a leather jacket, jeans, and a leather headband. Claiming he knew nothing about the gunshots, some of the officers decided to stay with Bruce while others went to inspect the house. Once inside, they found the bodies of six individuals lying amongst a bloody crime scene. When the information was relayed on the radio, the men who stayed with Bruce said that their suspect had just admitted to being the Antichrist and that the world was coming to an end on the 31st. From what police could piece together, this is what happened inside of the Blackman home on that fateful evening. Richard Blackman was shot multiple times by his son, including in his palm and cheek. His brother Ricky, just 16 years old, hearing the gunfire, ran out and, after trying to flee, was shot to the ground. His mother Irene was shot in the back of the head, and sister Karen Dale Rhodes, 24, was shot in the head shortly after arriving at the house. The man seen by the neighbor running from the home was John Davies, 28, Bruce's brother-in-law, who was shot a total of six times and bludgeoned with a hammer. And finally, Roberta Lynn Davies, 28, Bruce's sister and John's wife, who watched her brother attack her husband and begged him to stop, was shot twice and dragged back into the garage while her head cracked against the concrete before being beat with a hammer as well. Bruce, clearly in the midst of a mental breakdown, was sent to a mental institution for around-the-clock care. After finally being found unfit to stand trial, in April of that same year, he was deemed fit and sent to the courts where he was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Sent to the Forensic Psychiatric Institute in British Columbia for what the jury assumed would be the rest of his life, laws changed, and in 1993, Bruce Blackman's name was changed and he was released. His whereabouts today are unknown. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on January 19th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.